All right, so like I said, we're playing a game. It's called painting your photo. Images will go up. Let's start off pretty easy with the first one. Photo, yes, this is our beautiful LA skyline. Let's go to the next one. Yes, also our beautiful LA skyline, but a nice artful rendition of it. Yes, Frida Kahlo, one of her famous self-portraits. No, no, she was beautiful. Photo, actually. This is Nabib Nakluft Park in Namibia, and this amazing photo is in National Geographic. It's camel thorn trees right at sunrise. Um, it, when the picture is bigger, when you look at the ground, you can like really tell that it's that it's actually a photo. Um, but it's this incredible photo that they really captured. I, I don't even know how, but anyway, in Namibia. What's the next one? Y'all hesitated. You were like, she's going to get us this time. <laughs> yeah, this is Van Gogh, of course. And I wish our sky looked like that at different times. But, um, but yes, this is a painting. By the way, if you haven't gone to the immersive Van Gogh exhibit in Los Angeles, it is worth a day trip into Los Angeles. Nate and I don't love a day trip into Los Angeles because it's always a full day trip. But the immersive Van Gogh is really cool. Definitely worth making a day out of. All right, what's the next one? Yes, this is a photo. Nate and I live at Pepperdine, and, um, which is right in Malibu. This is one of the famous, iconic lifeguard towers in Malibu. A friend of ours took it and gave it to us for our, um, for our uh, wedding. And so we have that hanging in our house. All right, what's the next one? I can't remember how many are left. Yeah, painting. This is actually a digital painting. Um, my husband, Nate, actually painted this digitally. Um, and it is a artful interpretation of Jesus walking on the water toward the disciples in the storm, right before the disciples noticed Jesus. And so it's meant to kind of trigger your imagination of what is it that Jesus is thinking before the disciples notice him? And vice versa, what are the disciples thinking and feeling? So I love this. It's hanging in my office at Pepperdine. Um, and uh, he has a couple others that are super cool. Okay, what's the next one? We're split right down the middle. This is actually a painting. Yeah, <laughs> this is the last one. So the, this is the last one. This is a, um, a painting done by a painter. Uh, he's known as a hyper-realist painter named Junwan Zhang. And he actually has this TEDx talk where he talks about how art, especially hyper-realistic art, like this painting, this portrait of his grandfather, hyper-realistic art raises questions about reality. If a photo can look fake, like that Nat Geo photo of the trees, and a painting can look real, like this portrait of his grandpa, then how can we tell what is reality and what is fiction? Discerning reality gets real tricky real quickly. And in a world of AI and social media and Photoshop, deep fakes and disinformation, it becomes even more difficult. How often do we mistake reality with an artful rendition of reality? And how often 
do we mistake art with imitation and imitation for mockery? It is incredibly telling that an entire third of the Bible, 33%, is poetry. God chose to reveal God's self primarily not through a list of facts and not through a list of commands and not through comprehensive apologetics, but through stories and poems, through art, through written and spoken art. Consider Asaph, the poet and mus musician who wrote our psalm for today. We're going to be looking at Psalm 82. Asaph was a musician in the highest courts of the royalty that ruled over God's people, the Israelites. Asaph wrote 12 of the psalms that are now in our Bible, and almost all of them share a common theme, justice. Because of Asaph's position in the royal courts, he would have been very much in the know with the upper echelons of his society, the most powerful people in the land, those who God had entrusted to rule God's people with justice, with integrity, with honesty. But over and over and over again, Asaph saw these rulers refuse to use their power for the flourishing of all the people. Instead of being like God, who uses power with compassion and mercy and generosity, these rulers of God's people were greedy and selfish and corrupt. They used power for themselves and for their buddies at the top. In response to the injustice he witnessed, Asaph wrote poetry. Poetry so beautiful and moving that we are talking about it today, thousands of years later. Asaph created art that lifts the veil on justice and injustice in conflict with each other, on good and evil, at cosmic odds, on the literal wars and the culture wars of his day. And Asaph invites us to wonder what place we have chosen for ourselves in the clash. Psalm 82 imagines a scene in which the Lord has called together all the spiritual beings that God has delegated to rule over the world. This poem, when I read it, might be a little confusing at first because it might sound like God's people were polytheistic. They weren't, at least not in the same way that pagan cultures like Egypt and Rome were at the time. The Israelites believed that the Lord is the supreme God, the God who had created all things seen and unseen, including these spiritual beings referred to as gods in Psalm 82. In Hebrew, the word Elohim is used for both capital G God, the Lord of all creation, and these little g gods who only have delegated authority granted to them by the Lord. It might be helpful to know that the word Elohim in Hebrew 
which we translate as God or gods, depending on the context, actually means something more like spiritual being and can be used to refer to a lot of different things, kind of like how the English word organism can refer to anything from a human to a dog to a tree to a microbe, kind of like that. Elohim is a similar catch-all for lots of kinds and ranks of spiritual beings. Whenever you see capital G, God, in your Bibles, the word there in Hebrew is actually ha-Elohim, the God, because this God is the Elohim of Elohim. This God is the God above all other gods. So, ancient people like Asaph believed that spiritual beings are at work all around us, all the time. They called these spiritual beings little g gods, and they believed that the Lord had sent these little g gods to steward power for God, much like the Lord had delegated power to humans over the earth. This is a pretty foreign concept among most people in our culture. But we are the historical anomaly. Most humans throughout history have understood, it has been a given, that there is a spiritual world that exists alongside the material world. My spouse Nate and I lived in Uganda for a year working for a nonprofit, and for many of the people we met, Elohim, these little g spiritual, these little g gods, these spiritual beings, were integral to their lived experience. And some of those people who we talked to practiced their local traditional religion, which may include sacrifices, a form of worship to these Elohim, these little gods. But many others were devoted Christians. They didn't worship these spiritual beings, but they believed, much like Asaph, and the rest of God's people in the ancient world, and most of humanity throughout history, that these spiritual beings have real power and influence over our lives, for better and for worse. For Asaph, the problem wasn't that people of his day believed that these spiritual beings existed. He believed it too. For him like for many others throughout human history, their existence was a given. The problem in Asaph's eyes was when people mistook these little gods as the ultimate powers that ruled the earth. And in their worst moments, God's people were just like the pagans elevating these little gods as equal to or even above the one true Lord. But in their best moments, people like Asaph recognize these little gods as created beings just like us. Like us, they are fallible, and like ours, their definitions of goodness and justice are not always very good and just. Think about the little gods in our own lives. Our paychecks, our diplomas, our professional pursuits, the countries on our passports, the sports teams on our TVs or on our brackets. 
and our political tribes. These little gods matter. They impact our lives in real ways. Politics, policy, and earthly institutions are very important. God cares about those things. But we make a grave mistake when we worship them or when we expect those little gods to make us whole. As I read Psalm 82, finally, I invite you to step into Asaph's understanding of how the world works. Envision a world like the one I've been describing, where forces beyond our understanding and control wield tangible authority over us in just and unjust ways. Through Psalm 82, we learn that some of these little gods are unhappy with merely delegated authority, much like how humans are often unhappy with merely delegated authority. In Psalm 82, these little gods, they want to be supreme. They want to define goodness and justice all on their own. They want to replace God as the ultimate power over creation. This is Psalm 82. God presides in the divine council. The Lord renders judgment among the gods. How long will you all defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the marginalized and the orphan. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the suffering. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. The gods know nothing. They understand nothing. They wander about in darkness, so all the foundations of the earth are shaken. The Lord declares, you are gods, children of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, you will die like mere mortals. You will fall like every other ruler. Rise up, O God. Judge the earth for all the nations belong to you. Eight verses of Psalm 82. They show us that these little gods have deceived themselves. And ancient people deceived themselves too when they worshipped them. They confused a painting for a photo and a photo for reality. They confused these little gods for the Lord and the Lord for just another God. They confused justice for violence and violence for power. Asaph looked at the world around him, at the religious fervor of politicians and the political ambitions of priests. He looked at the greed of those who had accumulated wealth at the expense of others. 
and the ways people crush each other as they claw their way to the top. Asaph took it all in, and he said, the world is broken. And it is because human beings and spiritual beings, these created creatures who were called to be the image of God, the children of God, they have rebelled against the one true Lord. The Lord mourns the injustice and corruption and violence that powerful gods and powerful humans sometimes unleash on the world that God so deeply loves. God grieves the ways these little gods influence us to oppress each other, to rob each other, to go to war with each other. And so the Lord is doing something about it. At the end of the poem, these little gods become mortal. Their own lack of compassion for those who suffer has killed them. It was never right to worship these little gods alongside the one true Lord, just like it is never right to worship a human ruler. Nothing created should ever be worshipped in place of the creator. But now we know for sure what we suspected all along. These little gods are nothing but idols. And idols do not long for the flourishing of all like the Lord does. Where the Lord stands up for the vulnerable, these little gods coddle the powerful. Where the Lord lifts up the poor, these little gods favor the wealthy. Where the Lord teams up with the enslaved, these little gods celebrate the prestigious. When God uses power to serve and shares power with the gentle, These little gods use fear and force to hoard power for themselves, and they whisper in our ears, persuading us to do the same. To Asaph, this explains why the pagan empires that surrounded God's people throughout their history were so violent and cruel. They worshipped these unjust idols, instead of the one true Lord. The Egyptian empire, the Babylonian empire, the Assyrian empire. Later, we would add the Roman empire that murdered Jesus to the list. These empires listened to the rebellious little gods whispering in their ears, and they inflicted horrific atrocities on God's people and on so many others because of it. Oh, but Psalm 82 is not letting God's people off the hook. Asaph has been watching the Israelite kings in their palaces and the Israelite priests in their temple. And he sounds the alarm that they too have rebelled against God because God's people who should know the loving character of the true Lord 
They have confused a painting for a photo and a photo for reality. They have confused these idols for gods and these little gods for the one true Lord. They have confused justice for violence and violence for power, and God is having none of it. So Psalm 82 promises that all things will return to the sovereignty of the Lord. These little gods have failed to rule well. They have not stewarded their delegated power in such a way that life on earth would flourish. So they are getting a demotion. Oh, but as we know, the damage was already done. And the damage continues to be done over and over and over again. Because Psalm 82 is not just a magnifying glass to critique the ancient pagans or God's ancient people. Psalm 82 is not a pair of pliers to rip out the splinter in the eyes of our contemporary adversaries. Psalm 82 is a mirror. And if we look into it, honestly, we just might see the planks in our own eyes. We may not call them gods like the ancient people did, but we have idols all the same. And they may go by different names, but we still choose to be trapped in their grip. We idolize power, and it's never enough. We worship political leaders as long as they make me and my tribe feel like we have control over those we have deemed enemies. We idolize wealth, and it's never enough. We worship accumulation because the cost to the most vulnerable people and to the planet itself is nothing compared to my sense of convenience and accomplishment. We idolize prestige, and it's never enough. We worship the climb up the social ladder, and we pat ourselves on the backs to drown out the cries of those being crushed on the bottom. We idolize ourselves, at least. I idolize me. There's no little God more important than the one in the mirror with the giant plank in her eye. We reveal who we worship all the time by the words we speak and by the actions we take, what we spend our money on and who we spend our time with and how we fill our schedules. We are persuaded by the whispers of the idols they tell us getting our way is justice and gentleness is sin. Might makes right and being right is more important than the truth. The culture wars in our nation and in our communities do not revolve around justice. They are not focused on righteousness. They do not spring up out of love. Just like the culture wars of Asaph's day, the culture wars today are about power, wealth, and prestige. Every jab 
in the battles of the culture war is a sacrifice to the idols of the empire. In none of it is the compassion and gentleness of the Lord to be found. All of it is a placation to the little gods of power, wealth, and prestige. And for these little gods, it is never, ever, ever enough. We have confused a painting for a photo and a photo for reality. We have confused these idols for gods and these little gods for the one true Lord. We have confused justice for violence and violence for power. Siblings in Christ, as we, look, as we like Asaph, look at the world around us at the poverty around the globe, at the degradation of our planet, at the culture wars that plague our nation and our communities, we are called to be a discerning people, to wisely discern the painting from the photo and the photo from reality. We are called to name the idols of the empires, and we are called to reject the persuasive claims that these little gods of power, wealth, and prestige try to make on our lives. We are called to resist the little gods of the empires who try to distract us with the pursuit of political power. We are called to resist the little gods of the empires who try to distract us with fear and anxiety about the future. We are called to resist the little gods of the empires who try to distract us with the discord and the chaos of the culture wars. Instead, we are called to be people of God's kingdom, people of compassion and justice who side with the oppressed and amplify the voices of the marginalized. Sometimes it feels like the empires have already won. I know. The little gods of the empires try to persuade us to believe that if we don't take power, then we will be trampled. That if we don't hoard wealth, that we will be destitute that if we don't demand prestige, then we will be irrelevant. Sometimes it feels like if we don't offer the sacrifices demanded by these little gods of power, wealth, and prestige, that we won't survive. This is all a lie. It is the final grasping at straws of dying mortal idols. It is the noisy clinging of little gods who want to distract us from reality. The reality that Jesus proclaimed and that Jesus invites us to live out in every facet of our lives. The kingdom of God is at hand. And this reality is totally unlike the little gods of the empires. It is totally unlike the power, wealth, and prestige that we clamber over in our culture wars. The kingdom of God is humble and gentle. It is compassionate and just. It is true power. 
It is the real treasure. And its upside-down social ladder reveals the inherent value of all people and all creation. The kingdom of God is the realest of realities. It is the Lord's. And I pray that we cast our lot there. Because these petty little gods of the empires, they will fall. All creation belongs to the one true Lord, and the kingdom of God will reign forever. Let us pray. Lord, we reject the little gods and the claims they hold over us. We repent of the ways in which we practice and will practice idolatry. We reject power, wealth, and prestige as it is defined by those who are trying to steal power from you. May we be people of your kingdom. May we be compassionate and just and gentle. Show us how to love fully. Lead us in the way of your peace. In the name of God the Creator and God the Christ and God the Holy Spirit who walks before us and alongside us and dwells within us, it is in your name we pray. Amen.